0: Boys and girls, let's make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there, a place you can ask us questions. And for the rest of you, we'll be continuing our journey together through Ecclesiastes. This morning, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 8 through 20. And it's printed for you in toto and that ESV translation in your bulletin. And before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him together in prayer. No, Father, you have promised us that all Scripture is your very inspired Word. And you've said that it's profitable, Lord, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that your people can be complete, perfect, equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come before your word today, you would open it up to us, open our hearts up to it, that we may walk, Lord, in renewed obedience and renewed appreciation of your grace to us in the gospel. And we ask, Lord, that those here today who do not know you may come to know the forgiveness that is offered solely in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get started this morning on Ecclesiastes, I want to... um... I want to use a piece of art to kind of get us into this text this morning, but I want to give credit to a Phil Riken, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, now current uh, president of Wheaton College, who gave me this idea. I want to give credit where credit is due. Anyway, I want to look at this painting together to kind of get, a, get our mindset into uh, the text this morning, if we can get that up there. There we go. Okay, this, is a, uh, this is called The Moneylender and His Wife. This is print uh, by Quentin Metzis. This is from the mid-1400s. This is like a very typical standard example of what's called the Flemish School of Art. Uh, It was centered around Antwerp, which is where this artist lived. And Antwerp at the time, I'm going somewhere with this, just hang with me, was the center of economic commerce of Europe at the time. There was money from all over Europe, different kinds of currencies, and so they needed moneylenders to have a typical exchange rate. And so these moneylenders were very necessary and very hated because they symbolized greediness and rich, and people just didn't like them. There's a moral in this story that the artist is trying to present here with the moneylender and his wife. And we don't know this because we're not the original audience, but the original audience would immediately recognize, if you'll notice, his wife is flipping through the pages of a book. That book is a very well-known, common, for lack of a better term, let's call it a devotional book. This is a very... Um, popular book of prayers. The page that she's open to right there, if you look, is, is a, a picture of the virgin with, the, the, uh, with her son, Jesus. And that picture marks out what book this is. Notice what she is doing in that painting. She has gone from studying devotionally, looking at God's Word, and notice what has taken her gaze and what gets her heart now. She's looking at what her husband is doing, what her husband is doing, and yeah, you can see it and this is a little bit better, is he's got all sorts of different money there. There's a pile of pearls at the very front of the painting there, and all of a sudden these pretty shiny trinket things have really taken her attention. She's looking at the money. This is a moral inside of this painting, and the artist is saying, look at how money and the love of money can so easily take your eyes off devotion to God and make you look and focus on it. He's trying to tell a story. You can go and actually see this painting in the Louvre in Paris, and they have a full explanation of this. This was the artist's intent. This is not me as a preacher reading Christianity into this. This is what the artist wanted you to see. And so we're going to use that as a jumping-off point this morning because if you remember where we are in Ecclesiastes, this pastor philosopher who's written Ecclesiastes, he is going hard after envy. Last week, he did it by reminding us of the importance of worship, how there's a huge distance between God and between us, and in that distance, that should dissolve envy because envy makes us think we're so important. We see how big God is. We see he is important. Well, the other part of the cure for envy here, the rest of this chapter, is he's going to show us the damage that envy does whereas the worship of God leads to contentment. You know, it's really hard to be envious if you've got satisfaction in your life, if you're content, if you're happy. But you can't just choose it. It has to be created in us. Contentment and satisfaction have to be given to us. And we sense that, kind of. We sense that, you know, i got to go find this somewhere. And so we seek it out. We seek out satisfaction. We seek out contentment through things the Bible calls idols. And so with that in mind, I want to go together. Let's look at God's Word here. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. This is God's Word. <clears throat> If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? "'Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. "'Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment "'in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. "'For this is his lot. "'Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them "'and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil.'" This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is God's word. And so this text here, as we're going to go through it today, it shows us what happens if we do not worship God and then follow him. But instead, we turn to idols to try to satisfy us and fulfill us. And so I want to kind of give you a theme for today. You can remember this, boys and girls, write this down. Maybe later at lunch when you're thinking about what the sermon was about and talking about it, you remember? Here's what we're going to talk about today. Our idols keep us on the hook, but only in the gospel do we find what our heart wants. You see, idols use great bait. And, and we're not happy once we bite it and we get on the hook, but we need instead to be caught and released. And so let's look at this together. First of all, idols use really good bait. This text starts out and he tells us, you know what, you're going to see oppression all around you. You're going to see injury. You're going to see fraud. You're going to see extortion among the destitute and needy especially. You're going to see a total perverting of justice and righteousness in a world under the sun. And when you see it, don't be dumbfounded that it's there. That is life under the sun. You know, right at the end of our street, I'm not going to say the name because these go out on the internet, but there is a money lender right at the end of our street. I pass it twice a day. And I pray against it twice a day. I'm not saying I pray for the building to burn down, but I don't know how to finish that sentence, so I won't. But it's a predatory lending institution that just preys upon the working poor in our community. If you know the usury laws in our state, they're allowed to charge interest that you and I would slap a banker if they tried to put on us. And they're allowed to do it, and they get away with it. I'm not amazed that it's there. I'm not dumbfounded. I'm angry and I pray against it, but that's the way of the world, that's how it works. So that's what he's saying here. saying, look, don't be completely undone when you see how people treat each other. He uses a picture here that's kind of near and dear to most of our hearts. He looks at the system of bureaucracy and regulation. And he says that system is actually the main oppressor of the poor. I don't know if it's encouraging to you or discouraging to you that here is a text written roughly 800 to 1,000 years before Christ, and he's complaining about bureaucratic overreach of government. That's like what, so 3,000 years people have been putting up with that at least. That, that kind of encouraged me at first, and then it kind of didn't, actually. You see, he's saying, look, man, that entire system looks out for itself. But don't be amazed. That's life under the sun. Now, this is more than an anti-government rant. Okay? He is not about to try to establish the Occupied Jerusalem movement. That's not what's going on here. It's so much bigger than that. Here's what he's doing. If you remember back in verses 1-7, through we were in church. We were in worship. Now we're stepping out of church and we're looking out at our community and we see it doesn't work. It is messed up. And we see it with new eyes because we've been in worship. And as much as we appreciate the country we live in, verses 8 and 9 remind us that no government under the sun can ensure justice and Righteousness. Because it's made up of people just like us, right? People who are riddled with envy, insecure, and in love with money. And that particular love of money is where this text then lands. Because the world under the sun loves it some money. And verse 10 reminds us money can never satisfy. Now that sounds like religious cliche 101, doesn't it? Money can never satisfy you. So what I want to do is I want to step out of the religious world and try to make the case here. I want to go to our old friend that we've been using in Ecclesiastes who has so much to say that's right in line with God's Word here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that old friend would be the philosopher we've looked at a couple times, Friedrich Nietzsche. Here's what he said, if you don't believe me. He asked this question. He says, what induces one man to use false weights Another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud. What gives rise to all this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious, but they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly. Equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done... For love of God is now done for the love of money. Friedrich Nietzsche, an utterly pagan philosopher, looking at Western culture 200 years ago, and he basically says, Western culture is going to make an idol out of money. If you remember, Nietzsche's famous for saying, God is dead and we have killed him. He wasn't saying it as a brag. He was saying it, looking at Europe, saying, y'all are acting like... God is dead. You still go to your state-sponsored churches, but y'all live as if God is dead. Well, guess what? Here's what the world looks like if God is dead. And one of the things he said is, we will make money our God instead. How prescient is that? You see, idolatry, it's not dancing around a totem. It's, it's trying to make a good thing into an ultimate thing. Or maybe a, a different way to think about it is, idolatry takes something we kind of like And transforms it into something we absolutely need to be happy. Therefore, it owns us. We have to protect it then. We find that usually we can't function without it. We become so dependent upon this good thing. Now we have to have it. For some of you in the room, this this money thing is speaking right to your heart. For some of you in the room, you're like, you know, that's really not me. Great. But every one of us is tempted to some form of idolatry. Let me take a shot at one of them. The Supreme Court decision that came back out a couple Fridays ago has rocked you know, about legalizing gay marriage in all 50 states. It is a new America. It is a fundamentally different America than it was three weeks ago. And that has rocked the understanding of government for many American Christians. In fact, I just someone sent me a Facebook message earlier this week showing me how there's this movement and are we gonna do this to take the so-called Christian flag we have, yeah, that thing, and put it above the American flag out on a flagpole to show that Christianity over country. We're not doing that. But anyway, there's that, you know, America has let us down. We gotta show them that no, we're not gonna do that. There's this there's this angst there, isn't there? See, but Ecclesiastes right here reminds us, look, you're gonna see oppression in this world. You're going to see violations of justice. You're going to see unbelievable, systematic foolishness and unrighteousness happen. We grieve at those things, but we're not undone. We're not dumbfounded because our hope and our security is not in this government. And hopefully it never was. Instead, as those gifted with the New Testament, things like this remind us. They point us to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. When that Supreme Court decision came down, which wasn't at all a surprise, I hope it really wasn't a surprise to you, when it came down, I was so overjoyed and hopeful. It's like, now we can actually have a real conversation about the gospel in America because cultural blah Christianity is dying and I will nail the final coffin in myself personally. Now we can have real Christianity that costs something. See, when government does something unjust, it's supposed to point us to Christ. Again, that's not just me talking. Let me make let, let's make the case from scripture itself. I want you to think about those famous verses we use from Isaiah at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Many of you know them, you've you probably sung them if you've been in a choir. What's it say? It says this it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, that is the promise we have in Jesus Christ who reigns as king right now. All the junk and oppression that takes place in this world is overcome by us remembering those of us who've been united to Christ by faith. We are from a different country, a different government, one that works with a king who loves righteousness and justice. See, and then as citizens of that kingdom who've been sent as missionaries here, rooted and grounded in him... We can function in this world without being undone, without being dumbfounded, even though all the frustrations and oppressions we see around us. Hallelujah. He doesn't just say, go. He equips and says, now go into this world under the sun. See, idols use great bait, though. They put it everywhere, and it tugs at our heartstrings. So don't freak out when you see systematic injustice when things that you just don't understand that rock your understanding of your country, when those things happen, instead, let those things remind you and trigger your desire to see Christ's reign come. But even knowing that, even knowing that, we still take the bait, don't we? We see it, and we want it, and we take it. Idols get us on the hook. This text is about the specific idol of money, but it applies to idols in general. So keep that in mind as we work through these verses. If you're not having an idol of money thing in your life, you have an idol of something in your life. Let's work through these ele- uh, together. So verse 11 shows us that as a person who makes more money, often there are more and more folk around trying to get it. So the, the person who makes more money doesn't get to enjoy it. Maybe it's the government bureaucracy from verses 8 and 9 who take more of the money. Maybe it's just people who show up when you've got money going, can I have some? You know who they are. Maybe it's that, but regardless, you know what? You don't get to enjoy it. And then verse 12 comes and says, you know what? This guy who has all this money, he can't even sleep because he's worrying about his money. Okay, so what's the point? He's got the money and he's not happy. In the words of that great philosopher of our age, Mick Jagger, he can't get no satisfaction. Because his idol of money has him on the hook. Now, on the hook is not just a fishing term, okay? I am not a fisher person at all. Okay, I know Jeff Hawley's not here and Frank's not here. My dad's not here. Those are three men I know of who fish fear their name. Okay, I am not that person. But on the hook is actually used by millennials and it's also used by Gen Xers. It's a relational term. Anybody heard the term on the hook used it as far as relationship? What it means is typically, let's say, someone who's more popular. Let's use school terminology. Someone who's more popular knows that someone who's less popular has a thing for them. And so they tantalize them. They have no intention of ever having a relationship. But you know what? Someone who's willing to do stuff for you because they like, kind of like you, that's kind of handy to have around. So you tantalize them with the promise of a potential relationship and they take the bait and you have them on the hook and you string them along. It's Friday night and you got nothing to do. He'll go out with me the last minute. or I need this favor. My car's will he'll, t- he'll take care of it. It's called having someone on the hook. And that's exactly what idols do to us. They tantalize us with a promise that they cannot keep, have no intention of keeping, and we grab it and we keep going back to them. Saying, make me happy, make me happy. Will you please fulfill your promises? They get us, they have us, and they won't let us go because they never actually deliver something that satisfies our heart. They keep us hooked. They make us into their servants. To use the language of Ecclesiastes, we then toil for them. We toil for our idols because we don't get satisfaction. We don't get fulfillment. They promise us and they don't deliver and it leaves us trapped. It leaves us miserable. It leaves us on the hook. I believe, by the way, this is why Jesus warns people far more about the idol of money than he ever does about the idols of sex or immorality. Because greed specifically is and idolatry in general ruins our lives. But the creator God wants us to flourish. The creator God wants us to have joy, wants us to have rest. But idols, idols leave us, well, what does the text say? How do the idols leave us? Let's look at verse 17 together. Idols leave us just like this. Is what? All his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. That doesn't sound like his best life now, does it? See, in service to our idols, we spend our lives depressed, grieved, and angry. Let me ask you, look into your heart right now. What makes us stressed, sick, depressed, or angry? Usually, if we're candid, it's an assault on or a failure of an idol we've committed to. And we react poorly. Boys and girls, I've been using some big terms here. Sorry, I want to talk to you a little bit. Let me ask you something, boys and girls. Do you have a favorite toy? Do you have something that you just love it so much you don't want anyone to hurt it? Do you think about that toy? You don't want other people playing with it? Don't touch it. That's kind of what the Bible's talking about here, boys and girls. We care so much for something. We hope it makes us happy, but usually we're so scared of it getting hurt that we never actually enjoy it because it's too important. To use the you know, words of Gollum from Lord of the Ring, it has become precious to us, and it eats us from the inside out. Boys and girls, if you've got something like that in your life, you should probably talk to mom and dad about that. They want to know that. Or non Christians, if you're here today, maybe you don't quite use the language of idolatry. Okay, that's kind of religious terminology. I absolutely admit that. But let me ask you something else: Do you want freedom? It's probably really important to you to be able for you to define your own life, to express yourself, to be authentic. Our culture, what Ecclesiastes calls life under the sun, tells us what? Well, you need to discover your deepest desires and then fulfill them. And that's how you can become an authentic, real person. Right? That's pretty much how it works. See, but the problem with that is none of us live in a vacuum, do we? We don't simply create an identity from within. We don't simply say, what, do I, what are my deepest desires and how do I then express those? We don't do that. We all live within a community that has standards. Whether we like those standards or not, we are there. And those standards help us decide which inner desires to accentuate and which to suppress. Let me give you a quick example of where I'm going with this. I want you to think about the idea of tribalism. Tribalism is a cross-cultural Absolutely ancient practice of humanity. So when you have something that's cross-cultural and absolutely ancient, that's not a stereotype. That's an archetype. That means literally everybody does it. Tribalism in America expresses itself. It's deeper than the whole, you know, Clemson versus, you know, Carolina thing. It's, it's, it's expressed in racism. Now, you go to Africa, and you're going to see tribalism among among people that if they came here, they would be all the objects of racism. It's interesting to see, but that expresses itself in America in racism. So when that pops up in our hearts, our community standards tell us if we should accentuate that tribalistic impulse or if we should suppress that tribalistic impulse. You see, it's not you saying, I will find my inner desires, and I will express them to be authentic. No, it's like, I don't want to be this person because this is the community I want to be part of. I'm going to suppress this. Okay, so where am I going with that? It means you're not free. You do not alone by yourself get to decide who you're going to be. The group you associate with does. Does. We all filter ourselves through the standards of our chosen community. And so the question is this. Does the community you want to be part of allow you to flourish? Or is conforming to it an idol that never actually fulfills you? Is it actually stifling you and it never gives you the promised satisfaction? It just tantalizes you and holds you up to it. But you never can be that, the ideal person enough to feel like you've arrived. You see, we all have deep down a desire for satisfaction from life. And often we look to idols, as this text shows us. We look to money especially, but we all look to all kinds of idols for satisfaction. But there's also a deep desire we have. In addition to satisfaction, we all have a deep desire for significance to matter, and that's also in this text. In fact, this is the big way that we are hooked by idols. What I want us to do is I want us to get the feeling of this text. I want to all look together at the kids' translation of verses 13 through 16. So let's look at, boys and girls, get your bulletin out. Let's look at this together, verse 13 through 16. says, It makes me sick to see a rich man worrying over his money, only to lose it in a bad business. He then has nothing to pass on to his son, he was naked and poor when he was born, and in spite of a life of hard work, he will leave this world naked and poor. It makes me sick to think that he worked so hard for nothing. See, notice the repeated refrain there of working hard, or of toil we all toil under the sun we all work hard to matter we want significance from our toil we want to matter do you remember this is a common theme in ecclesiastes you remember about a month ago the idea of a pile of rocks remember that where where there's this there's this thing in the old testament whenever god does something significant he says the person okay i want you to stop what you're doing i want you to make a pile of rocks and then walk away okay And then it says, now later on, generations from now, when children walk by and they say, hey, Dad, what's the pile of rocks for? They can tell the story of what significant thing I just did. It it was called a remembrance. It was called a memorial. And so every time you see in Ecclesiastes or else other places in the Old Testament they say, I want a remembrance. I want a memorial. What they're saying is, I want God to do something significant in my life. I want there to be a marker that people can see and say, wow, his life mattered. And that's the desire expressed here, that same drive that you and I have to count for something, to be remembered. See, the rich person in this text, they have given their heart and their life to this idol of money, and they have nothing left to take with them, nothing to give to the next generation. There is no remembrance. They have no pile of rocks after toiling their entire life for riches. They've lost it all. They've toiled, and they may as well have been toiling for the wind. Which hopefully that rings a bell. That's a familiar phrase from Ecclesiastes. Now he shows what it actually looks like. You've worked your whole life in one bad decision. You now have nothing. You've toiled for the wind. You have failed in your quest for significance under the sun. What do you do when your idol fails? I'll give you a hint. You're back in verse 17. Anger, depression, stress, grief. Look into your heart right now. What causes those things in your life? I want to tread very carefully here because there are times when anger and frustration are legitimate feelings. They're not always an indicator of idolatry, but very often they are. Let's do a thought experiment and please don't throw anything at me. Let's consider the recent issue of the Confederate flag. It's really bothered a lot of people on both sides, pro and con. And some of you on both sides, pro and con, have experienced the emotions of verse 17 over this issue. Perhaps there's an idol there. Either an idol that you matter and you have significance because of your heritage, or you matter and have significance because you're side one. Either way... If you find yourself really emotionally invested in this, you need to examine your heart and ask am I am I have I drifted into what the bible calls idolatry on either side of that issue? You see Christians and non-Christians, we are both susceptible to idols. Especially because our culture is so big on the message of significance. Make your life count. Do something amazing. Meaning and purpose comes by doing something important and being remembered. And here's where we Christians cheat. Because in the Christian narrative, there is absolutely a connection saying, God has purposes in the world and he uses certain people for those purposes. And so when your life plugs into one of his purposes for the world, you have significance because your creator is using you and you matter. But if you're not a Christian... If you're operating out of a narrative that doesn't really acknowledge God at all, how, how do you anchor your life in anything substantial or significant? How do you do that? If there's nothing beyond this material world, if eventually you know, the sun is going to supernova, let's say, and burn up everything that ever existed on earth, how does anything humanity accomplish ultimately matter? how are we better off than the man in verses 15 or 16 who comes naked and leaves naked? And nothing matters. Atheist philosophers have struggled with this question. For those of you who haven't spent a lot of time talking to non-Christian neighbors perhaps, they are asking these questions. This is why I'm spending time doing this. Atheist philosophers have wrestled with this question. And One of the best answers that the atheist philosophers think they have come up with And this is not me using preacherly hyperbole. You can look this up. His name is Luke, L-U-C, ferry, F-E-R-R-Y, like the boat, ferry. He says this. He has what's considered the best answer. He says this. Look, serve the poor. Go out and volunteer. Do important things. But don't kid yourself that it has any ultimate meaning or significance. You are doing it only for yourself because only you matter in the end. That sounds terribly unfulfilling to me but it's the best their philosophy can come up with. And it puts you right back to looking for significance, trying to prove you matter by doing something in this life. You're back to what the Bible calls seeking an idol. See, idols can't satisfy. They can't bring you any real satisfaction or significance, but they keep you on the hook. They tantalize you, promising you these things, but they never deliver. And we end up with a toilsome life Exhausted, full of stress, depression, anger, and grief with nothing to show for it. But there is something better. See, the gospel catches and then releases. See, life under the sun, living in our current culture, puts enormous pressure on us to find our dreams and to fulfill our deepest desires in order to be a real person. And if we don't do those things, we feel like failures. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you know you do this. And your non-Christian neighbors, they think this way. And so the question we need to ask our non-Christians out of love is to say, how are you free if you must fulfill this dream? Otherwise, you are a failure. How does that help you flourish and have joy? If you have to fulfill this or you fail. I don't believe our culture has an answer. See, but God's word does. So look with me at verses 18 through 20. We'll end with this. He says, look, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And literally, that very beginning there at verse 18, we could actually translate that as it is beautiful to find joy in the toil of life. How is it beautiful? Because God is now in the picture. That's why it's beautiful. See, living under the sun, having joy, flourishing, getting off the hook of idols requires resources from above the sun. Verse 19 tells us that the the satisfaction and the significance that our envious heart seeks from idolatry is actually found simply as a gift from God himself. Not something you have to earn and impress them to get. He gives it as a gift what the idols promise but never deliver. And in the context especially of the worship picture from verses 1 through 7, we worship and serve the creator in order to be set free from idols. Then, having set us free, he gives us joy and contentment in this life. So how do we get the hook of idolatry out? You ready? Here's five practical steps. No, you can't get the hook of idolatry out. We must be caught and then released. Again, I want to give you a picture of this. I want to help you see this. I want to go back to our painting. We started out at the very beginning because Quentin Metzis was a Christian. He's put all sorts of symbolism there. In fact, I would, I would encourage you, if you want to this afternoon, as a maybe Lord's Day activity, to, to Google the moneylender and wife and then read an explanation of all the various symbols. Everything in that painting is there for a reason. But what I want to especially do is I want you to look at that. See this shiny kind of round mirror in the very middle of the thing there? I want to zoom in on that. Okay, I want you to look very closely there. And see, see what you see there? You've got a window. So that mirror is reflecting a window. Having a mirror in the painting reflecting something is a hallmark of this Flemish school of art. And if you look very carefully there at that window, you'll notice there's four panes. In the left-hand pane, you see a cathedral off in the distance. Then you've got the stained glass. And then what's the shape of the crisscross? It's a cross, right? So he's he's all of a sudden bringing, what's the solution? Well, if you notice, there's also a person in there can you everybody see the person in the mirror? It's kind of hard to see. Everybody see the person? And he's reaching out his hand to grasp onto that cross. And just like you and I didn't recognize the book, we don't recognize that, but they would have. That's the artist himself. He put himself in the painting saying, how do you overcome this alluring idol of money that takes away your devotion to God? You grasp onto the cross. That's how you do it. The gospel has to catch us. See, the artist here shows what the pastor philosopher of Ecclesiastes tells us. Idols can't be removed, they have to be replaced by grasping onto something else. The gospel catches us, and it does it by offering us real significance. Let me show you that from God's word. Sticking with this picture of money, let's look together at 2 Corinthians 8 9. I believe we have that for you. Yes. Here's what Paul says, look, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, in the voluntary poverty of Jesus Christ, we can become rich. Jesus gave up his treasure in heaven to make us his new treasure. To use the language of today, of our culture, Jesus made himself insignificant so that in him we could become significant. He could root us and ground us in him. That's the gospel. Be captured by that. Be captured by the truth that we were so messed up, so damaged, that it took the death of Jesus Christ to save us. But we are so loved that he voluntarily did it. See, that gospel captures our hearts, gives us significance. And in that, we are then released to have joy and contentment. To have our heart be so full of joy that we barely notice the daily toils of life under the sun. That is what's promised in verse 20. See, the gospel offers us real significance and then it gives us real freedom because it captures us and releases us to flourish under the grace of God through Jesus Christ. See, what the idols all around us promise but never deliver, Jesus earned and gives to us by his grace. That gospel is for you. Be caught and then released by it. You can have joy and satisfaction in your life right now. Forget everything you think you know about Christianity. All that stuff you learned about when you were a kid way back, forget all that stuff. Cast off everything you've kind of just called religion and, not, and ignored, and simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Or like the artist in the painting, just reach out for the cross. And Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, he will catch you. He will root you and ground you in his love. He will introduce you to your new adopted father. In a way, he says, man, my dad is so great, and maybe he can become your dad too. And in that love and significance, you can be released to flourish and be happy and find everything you go to idols for. So right now, we'll close with this. Think about all the stuff of verse 17. Think about what makes you angry, what grieves you, what dumbfounds you, what makes you sick and depressed. And even now in this moment, ask the Lord Jesus to set you free from, the, from that whatever it is that causes that in you and to release you to have joy. I'm going to give us a few moments of silence and then I'll close us in prayer. Let's, let's, let's have some time together.